so very good afternoon to you all, and thank you for coming to this talk. Uh, so as Mira mentions, mentioned, this is very much work in progress. We just started analyzing uh, data connected, data that we've extracted um, related to the Indian elections and so on. But what I propose to do here is to give you an overview of uh, the research methods that we use to analyze elections, uh, what we've done so far, present some of those results, what we've found and what we've changed, and what we're going to focus on for the Indian elections. So uh, I hope you'll find it useful, and I'm happy to answer any questions. So without further ado, com computational propaganda. Uh, I must also mention that we have our data scientist, Benze Kalyani, in the audience, who's been with the project far longer than I have. So he'll be happy to answer questions as well. Thank you, Benze. Um, so, um, yeah, so what is computational propaganda? <clears throat> so we define computational propaganda as uh, algorithms that are used on social media to amplify certain narratives while suppressing other views and other opinions. So this could uh, take the form of bots or, um, or these automated entities that pretend to be real human users. Uh, that, that insistently retweet a certain message to create a false impression of consensus around a contentious issue. Uh, it could be algorithms that game your news feed and perhaps uh, push certain sensationalist type of news to the top of your news feed, or it could be what we define as, uh, as junk news. So we've consciously moved away from using the term fake news because it's been overused, it's become weaponized, and it's used by authoritarian figures to discredit um, media organizations that, are, uh, uh, that can be uh, opposed to their policies, that are critical of their policies, and so on. So what is uh, junk news? So this is a general classification of news sources. So I, I'm very much aware that I'm in a community of uh, journalists. Um, but yeah, this is our classification, broad classification of news sources that we extract from, uh, from political tweets. So uh, for our elections, we run a hashtag-based search on Twitter, and we extract tweets that have been posted using these hashtags, uh, and then extract URLs or links to news sources from these tweets. So they're broadly connected with the political conversation around the event that we are tracking. So it could be elections, it could be referenda. To, to perhaps give you an example, um, when we tracked the US elections, we would have tracked, say, vote for Hillary, or MAGA, or uh, Republican, red wave, and so on. So while we're collecting these hashtags, we take every care to ensure that they're balanced across different political ideologies so that our um, data collection is not skewed towards one particular ideology or a particular candidate. And our intention is to identify sources of junk news or sources of misinformation, to identify which of, uh, uh, to identify tweet accounts that are engaged in high-frequency tweeting. So we don't classify these accounts as bot accounts, but we have a fairly simple criteria to check if they have... Uh, if, if their activity is suspicious. So if they've been tweeting for more than 50 times a day, 
then we classify these accounts as high-frequency suspicious accounts. Um, and then we use this classification to classify the news sources that we've extracted. So we have professional news, civil society, it could be professional political con content, satire, and, and of course, junk news. So how do we classify news sources as junk news? So we have five main criteria. Um, professionalism would be, we would check if they're being open about their editorial policy, whether uh, uh, you know, they publish information, they're, they're transparent, they have, uh, um, they adhere basically to professional standards of journalism, that is, uh, um, yeah, and style, style would represent uh, whether they use sort of excessive capitalization, there are a lot of moving images, credibility would be whether they, they have fact-checking, whether they publish information on uh, debunked news, whether they, they publish corrections. Bias could be sort of sensationalist or hyperpartisan reporting. And counterfeit is when they, when they actively mimic a more established news organization. So that's an, <clears throat> that's an attempt to, to trick audience groups into believing that the news comes from a well-established news organization. So we have a team of human coders who are uh, familiar with the country that we're studying. So we've studied elections in a number of countries, including countries in Latin America, in Europe, of course. Uh, so we, we train a team of coders who are, who are native speakers. So they could be Swedish, Portuguese, Spanish, etc., cetera, uh, to, to apply these criteria on the news sources that we've extracted. And if a news source fails on three of these five criteria, then we, then we mark it as junk news. Um, and then we, we report on what percentage of news sources from our data sample has been classified as news sources. And this gives you an indication of the type of uh, information that's been circulating on social media platforms in the lead up, in the run up to an election or a major political event. Um, so this has formed the sort of uh, crux of our work uh, in studying elections. Um, so this is, this is a sort of summary of our uh, results in maybe the US and the UK, which many, many of us are familiar with. So, um, so we found that Nearly 12%, just over 12% of UK traffic was generated by highly automated accounts. So this was in the 2017 elections. So we've collected, so it's actually Benze who does the bulk of this work. And we collected over 13 million tweets here. Yeah. And there were hashtags relating to the Labour Party as well as the Tories. And we have a breakdown here. And this is a comparison between the USA, Germany, France, and United Kingdom. And I think the column of interest, the, the last column would be um, of interest to many of you. So this measures the sort of percentage of junk news to professional news. And in the USA, um, in 2016, that is the presidential elections, it was, the ratio was one is to one, which means that for every piece of professional news that audiences on Twitter were were reading or consuming, there was one source of, uh, there was one junk news source. Um, 
France, the situation is a little bit better. So it's about 1 to 6.5, whereas in the UK and Germany, it's about 1 to 4. So this was, um, this was uh, uh, two, three years ago already. Um, and we are going to be studying the European elections as well. So it would be a nice sort of comparison, point of comparison. Um, so last year towards, uh, so in the autumn, we studied the Swedish election, uh, some quick sort of results. So we found that on Twitter, so this is all Twitter so far. So we found that uh, the political discourse is about broader public issues rather than uh, specific that rather than about specific candidates so it's sort of it's not very partisan if you like and most um, Swedish users of Twitter were talking about public issues and so on um, but but strangely Swedish social media users social media this is Twitter users are sharing more junk news, one for every three URLs being shared with political hashtags. And among the European countries that we've studied, this is the highest percentage. So, and we also found that the top, so most of this junk news is homegrown. Eight of the top 10 junk news sources being of Swedish origin. And uh, the top three had direct links to the Swedish, uh, Swedish Democrats, the, the right-wing party, I think it's, uh, it's, it is the Swedish Democrats. So they had direct links with, uh, with this party. And, um, and of course, another very interesting election we studied was the election in uh, Brazil. And this is, again, a Twitter analysis. We found that uh, in the Global South, so we've studied, um, we've studied European elections. And last year, we studied a number of elections in Latin America. So, uh, we studied the Colombian elections, the Mexican elections, and then the Brazilian elections. And strangely, we found that contrary to sort of popular perception and so on, that um, the percentage of junk news, particularly on Twitter, was much less than what we found in some of the other countries in, uh, in Europe and indeed in the US. Um, so one of our conclusions was that uh, Twitter was perhaps an elitist platform in these countries, and they were used by professionals, by politicians, by journalists, which might explain why we don't see these sort of junk news sources circulating on this platform. Uh, but contrary to the Swedish elections, the hashtags were highly partisan. So they were either pro-Bolsonaro or pro-Haddad <coughs> with Bolsonaro completely dominating the conversation on Twitter. Um, but strangely, the opposition party, Lula and Haddad, so Lula Silva was uh, imprisoned and Haddad ran in his stead. So, uh, so that, those hashtags were associated with the highest level of high-frequency tweeting. So that kind of suspicious activity was, uh, was associated more with uh, Lula and Haddad hashtags. Um, and Bolsonaro supporters spread the widest range of junk news sources. So we have this list of junk news sources. So among this list of junk news sources, Bolsonaro supporters uh, spread the widest range, but Lula Haddad supporters accounted for the highest volume. So in terms of volume, the uh, Haddad group was ahead of the Bolsonaro group, but Bolsonaro group spread more sources from this list than the, than the others. So I, I, I quite like this picture because 
This is a representation of how Twitter accounts clustered around um, Bolsonaro and Haddad, and you can see how it's, it's, it's deeply polarized, but almost no middle ground. So this is very, very representative of, uh, you know, it, it sort of confirmed what we were beginning to believe after an initial data analysis. So we worked with another company based in New York called Graphica, who produced this graphic for us. But yeah, it's very, very illustrative of uh, uh, the sort of bitterly fought campaign in, in Brazil. So this was ahead of the first round of elections. So we found that, so when we, when we began to feel after a number of studies in Latin America that Twitter was an elitist platform, uh, we decided to, we thought perhaps we should look at other platforms. And Facebook, of course, uh, after the Cambridge Analytica scandal and so on, they really pulled up the drawbridge and it was very, very difficult to access data through their API and so on. And we knew in the case of Brazil that WhatsApp was going to play a huge role in the elections. So I don't have a slide for this, and it's a paper that's still under preparation. We've submitted it for review and so on. But we, one of our researchers, he managed to join um, over 100 Brazilian WhatsApp groups. And the content that we, uh, that we saw circulating in these groups oh, worse than anything that I could have imagined. I mean, it was pretty horrific with violence, gore, porn, so it was a pretty intense <coughs> campaign that was um, uh, that used that used WhatsApp as a tool for propaganda and misinformation and so on. So, um, it, so we we didn't do a deep dive uh, of WhatsApp data, and there's a lot of images and visual data that has to be analyzed, and we're still working out the ideal way to do this. So it has to be a combination of both qualitative as well as qu quantitative methods. And uh, you know the technology is not there yet. It's, it's hard enough for humans who are very, very familiar with the political landscape and so on to do this kind of classification. So with automated methods, we have a long way to go. But within just a week of joining these WhatsApp groups, we had more than about one GB of visual data to analyze. So we just we we um, uh, did some qualitative analysis based on a random selection of images, and of course we found that there was a um, there was there was a high proportion of junk news being shared, and also uh, users were being directed to YouTube from WhatsApp. So there were a number of YouTube links in our data sample, and this is an instance of maybe cross cross platform referencing. And it was a way of taking users from WhatsApp to YouTube, where, of course, the uh, recommended video system would kick in, the recommended system would kick in, and it would take them to view other, other videos, other related videos as well. So this was a sort of a pathway, if you like, to a specific YouTube video. And finally, to the topic of this talk, the Indian elections. Um, so, so, yes, so I'm from India and I have a kind of deep interest in the politics of the country. Um, <clears throat> so we started off in exactly the same way as we study all other elections. And um, 
so we put together a list of politically relevant hashtags. And this is a small selection of the type of hashtags we were tracking. So for those of you who are familiar with uh, the Indian uh, political context, maybe Soma would know the significance of these hashtags. So it's all to do with temples. The first three, I just realized now when I put up this uh, slide that the first three hashtags all have to do with temples. But uh, there are a number of other hashtags as well. But these are sort of uh, uh, politically volatile issues. And uh, you would expect to see heated debate around, uh, uh, around say, issues of religion and building a temple and so on. So, um, so there's the Sabrimala, the Ayodhya, where uh, Ram is uh, believed to have been born and where there was a mosque that was demolished and the current BJP government has promised that they would rebuild a temple and so on. Uh, and reservation, so there's... Um, so the Indian government, the BJP government again, has announced a scheme where they would, uh, so it's a form of positive affirmation. So we have a lot of um, caste base. So there, there were, uh, you know, marginalized sections of the society in India and so on. And we have several positive affirmation schemes to help them integrate with the rest of the society. Uh, so this is to help economically disadvantaged classes. So this is this is not based on you know, the sort of traditional Indian caste system, but anybody who um, falls below a certain threshold, an income threshold, is eligible for this 10% reservation. So that was, again, a very divisive issue. Um, so this was mainly to explore the media landscape and perhaps uh, build what we call an Indian dictionary. So we're familiar with, say, The Guardian would always be professional news, whereas the sun would be something else and so on. So we wanted to understand uh, what were the sort of media sources that were circulating um, in, in Indian Twitter. Uh, and again, certain so, language, were you only looking at English language? So English and Hindi, and of course, you know, Tamil, we weren't particularly looking at Tamil, but uh, um, uh, so Tamil is my native language, but we have, uh, we have two research researchers who are working with uh, with me and Benze and with uh, Nahima, who's also um, you know a deeper researcher with Comprov. So Ruchi and Ankita are Ankita is in fact based in Delhi. Ruchi is here, but both of them are uh, native speakers of Hindi. So we tracked Hindi hashtags as well. Um, Benze, do you remember off the top of your head? Do you? What Hindi? We it might have been Mandir in Hindi, for instance. Um, but we did make an effort so that the data, the intention is to collect sources in predominantly in Hindi and English, and if there are sources in Tamil, then that too. But uh, I think uh, I mean we've made the decision that it would be sufficient to look at the northern region because you know they're the key battleground states and. Uh, that's where the sort of religious nationalism plays a huge role. But it would be interesting in the future to study how uh, the politics of the South is different from the politics of the North and so on. And I have a personal interest in doing that. So perhaps from this data, there might be a study that looks at that. So this was to explore the media landscape. Uh, 
Right, so from, so again, in the Indian context, we found that there were very few sources that could be identified as junk news sources from, from Twitter. <coughs> Sorry. So what we did was to identify Facebook public pages corresponding to, uh, to a list of Twitter sources that we felt were relevant, politically relevant Twitter pages. We looked at the corresponding Facebook pages. Plus, we uh, so we call this a seed list because we uh, build a map out of this initial list. So we call it a seed list because it's uh, <clears throat> it acts as the seed, if you like, for this bigger bigger network of pages, public pages. So we're allowed only to work with publicly accessible data. So we work under fairly stringent ethical constraints. Um, so we started with a seed list of five Indian language newspapers based on circulation. So it could be the Dainik Jagran, the Dainik Bhaskar, I think there was Rajasthan Patrika, to name a few English language papers. So Hindustan Times, Indian Express, maybe the Hindu, and five prominent politicians. I think I'll leave it to your imagination to get through. So five prominent politicians would be say Narendra Modi to represent each of the major parties in India. So that would be the seed list. And we added the list of um, uh, Facebook public pages based on our um, Twitter list. So we, we had this Twitter list, and then we uh, looked at their corresponding Facebook pages and then added the seed list to it. Uh, and then mapped out a network based on uh, public page likes. So if you've, uh, if you've looked at public Facebook pages in Facebook, they have this like, um, do I call it a button option? And they like a number of pages that we think might be related to them. So they have a separate related pages list, but they also have pages liked by this page and so on. So we use that as the criteria to link these different pages together. And we've put together a network of over, um, I think, 10K pages, but which we've whittled down to about 1,000 to 2,000 pages based on how relevant they are to, to Indian politics. <clears throat> so we found, surprisingly, um, a large number of Ahmadmi Party pages. So Ahmadmi Party is this sort of, <clears throat> sorry, new party, for, for those of you who are not familiar with Indian politics, uh, it represents a sort of uh, third alternative to the more established parties like the Bharatiya Janata Party, BJP, and the Indian National Congress, which is our maybe grand old party, which is, which is the party of uh, the freedom struggle and so on. So um, it's, it's headed by this, um, by this professional called Arvind Kejriwal, and I think it's attracted a lot of following from, from the educated elite and maybe from professionals and so on. So that might be one explanation uh, for, uh, for, for, this, for this phenomenon. So we saw a lot of ARP pages, and even pages that um, ARP pages, district ARP pages, so they seem to have a public Facebook page dedicated to even the smallest districts in India, which was, which was a bit surprising. I mean, we haven't found 
these pages, you know, propagating misinformation. So I want to make that clear. But from our sort of initial analysis, we have found a lot of our pages. <clears throat> so, so our intention is to extract posts from this group of public pages that we've identified. They're all linked together based on their likes and so on. And they're also sourced from these uh, politically relevant Twitter hashtags. Um, so we will extract all posts from these public pages and then quote them, posts as well as images. And then we'll quote them using our usual typology. We'll quote the news sources and the posts using our usual typology. And for images, we're still in the process of finding a good way of classifying these images and identifying how they're used as a, as a tool to push propaganda. <clears throat> so this is, <clears throat> sorry, it represents sort of new direction for the team. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, so we also have uh, what is called the junk news aggregator. So this is this is something that one of our researchers, one of my colleagues, Dr. Mimi Liotsu, uh, built over the course of. of uh, I think it was it was it was released in November to coincide with the U.S. Uh, midterm elections. So this is a tool which. Uh, <clears throat> which tells you how the public has engaged with, these, with, with a list of junk news sources. So if you feed a list of junk news sources to this tool, it would give you <clears throat> the level of engagement with these news sources based on these eight metrics. So likes, shares, comments, and five reactions. So it gives you a, so this is all in real time. So every day you could use this tool to, to tell you how Facebook users have interacted with these list of junk news sources. So we could say, for instance, some story has gone viral because it, re it received a million likes, for instance. So we still haven't figured out, <coughs> um, we're not sure if we will use them in the Indian elections, but we have this tool, which, uh, which perhaps uh, will give us a further insight into uh, the type of engagement we see with junk news sources on Facebook. Uh, and finally, to WhatsApp analysis. Um, so this is a disclaimer straight away. It's preliminary. <laughs> the investigations are underway. And of course, we have, again, I have to reiterate this because we're very limited in what we can do. We have undertaken to join uh, to, to announce ourselves to every group that we join. So we have to be very upfront about what we're doing and we have to say that we are researchers from this institute and we would like to monitor this conversation, etc. So in the, in the Brazilian case, we managed to join a few groups. We were kicked out of others. Um, and we use the data only after receiving consent from all the participants of the group. Uh, or rather... We, we invite the participants to express whether they would uh, express if they're uncomfortable with, uh, with us using their data, in which case we don't use their data for, uh, for our research. And even, um, even when uh, you know, there are no objections, we only use data that can be considered to be in the public domain. So we use images, we use other media files, we use forwarded messages, but no personal information or uh, nothing that could be construed as a personal opinion. So 
it's within these constraints that uh, you know we're able to do our analysis <clears throat> so we have collected a list of public whatsapp groups to join so we do this based on a, a simple google search um, and we've tried to cover uh, the five major parties so uh, I think most of you would be familiar with the BJP and the International Congress. The SP would be the Samajwati Party, which, which has been in power in the state of Uttar Pradesh. BSP, again, is the Bahujan Samaj Party, so that's the party of um, Dalits or the so-called so depressed classes. So Mayavati is, um, is the leader of this party, so we have a real possibility of electing our first Dalit woman prime minister, which would be, yeah, which would be, I think, uh, a major leap for India. But since the and the BSP have joined hands, they're in alliance, and if they manage to win a lot of seats in UP, which contributes about 80 seats to the to the Lok Sabha, to the um, Parliament. <clears throat> and then we have a real chance of seeing uh, uh, Ms. Mayavati as the next Prime Minister of India. But, well, and uh, uh, RLD is the Rashtriya Lok Dal. So in UP, of course, it's still dominated. I mean, we can talk about progressive politics um, and, and uh, liberal politics and whatnot. But Indian po politics is still dominated by caste alliances, by... Um, by religion, by religious associations, and so on. So the Rashtra Lok Dal, again in UP, <clears throat> sorry, uh, they're the party of Jats, or these sort of powerful landowners. Um, and Ajit Singh, Mr. Ajit Singh, who's the son of former Prime Minister of India, um, traditionally has represented the Jat interests. And there's a real possibility that uh, the Jats of Western UP might align with, uh, might vote for RLD, which they didn't do in 2014. I mean, their vote was divided between the BJP and the RLD uh, because of, um, you know, there were riots, I think, in 2013 in Nagar, and we, we saw a powerful documentary the other day about this. And, uh, and I think the Jats... In the 2014 election, through their lot with the BJP, because there was this anti-Muslim sentiment. So, um, I think all these parties will try to cash in on those sentiments and play uh, identity politics in different ways. Um, but these are the groups that we're uh, that we're looking to join, and we've managed to join quite a few BJP groups, uh, and we hope to join a few more groups representing the other parties. But there is no doubt at all that the BJP is a master in using WhatsApp particularly to communicate with the masses and so on. But we'll see what type of messages they send out. Um, so we would classify, so in the Brazilian case for images, we had, um, I mean, you've seen our classification for news sources, but for images, we had a, um, <clears throat> we had a junk news category, then we had, uh, regular campaign material, and then we had religious polarization, so polarization along religious lines. So that would be a category that would be relevant in the Indian case as well. Um, and then we had hate speech, 
So if it's directed against minority groups or women, so that was another category. So we'll see what, uh, what we find when we analyze the data, but this is our, um, this is our methodology. Um, so we're hoping to quote sources, which is business as usual, but forwarded texts and images. I think uh, Soma can also speak to this. But there are a number of um, text messages that, that try to push propaganda and influence voters. So it's hard to describe uh, the nature of these text messages to anybody who's not familiar with, uh, with the Indian WhatsApp landscape. But uh, I think even when you're part of a family group, you get a number of these messages, um, you know, where, where they seem to suggest that the church has taken over land, temple land, or, you know, these, these sort of classic conspiracy theories, but which seems to be gaining some credence among the people because it's reinforced almost on a daily basis. And it would be interesting to investigate who the who the content creators are, because it seems to be a, a dedicated industry. We get, uh, we get at least, on average, 50 messages a week, and I'm only part of two or three groups. So it would be in interesting to investigate who has to gain by, you know, the sort of, <clears throat> yeah, economics behind this industry, if you like because I think there is a dedicated, there, there is an industry dedicated simply to creating these text messages and pushing them on social networks, particularly on WhatsApp. So, to, you know, it, it's, it's propaganda 24-7. And images, that's going to be really challenging. That's one of the, uh, we don't know how to crack it yet because the sheer volume is quite daunting. Um, and as I said, uh, automated techniques. So automated techniques for text as well as automated techniques for images are uh, still need to be developed further before we're able to use them on our sort of complex data sets and so on. So we'll see, uh, we'll, we'll have to, we're still thinking about discussing what might be the best ways and methods to analyze uh, the data we collect. Um, with that, I think we can talk about future directions. Um, yeah, we're also thinking about, you know, looking at other platforms and other countries as well. So other platforms could include Instagram and there are people who think that Telegram is being used as a tool for mobilization. So people have moved from WhatsApp to Telegram and so on. Although. I don't know how relevant it is. It's going to be in the Indian context. I think WhatsApp is still very, very popular as a tool for misinformation and propaganda. We're not doing this for India. But, um, and then there's AI-generated misinformation. I apologize for uh, the, the, the misspelling, misinformation and misspelled. But uh, anyway, so AI-generated. So we have techniques now that can learn from data sets to generate new data. This is something that I touched briefly upon in my last talk at the uh, at uh, last talk here. Um, so I'm interested in studying what impact this could have on future misinformation <clears throat> campaigns because for now we're fighting almost a it's not a losing battle but uh, it's a hard fought battle with human generated misinformation 
So when, you, when you're able to do it with, do it at scale, when it's AI-generated misinformation, when you're not able to tell generated images apart from images of real events, and when you can modify images. Of course, Photoshop has been around for a long time, but this is, this is, um, this is even more complicated because the, 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 the machine is actually learning to generate photographs from all data sets and so on. So I, um, you know, the, the, our instinct is that it's going to have a huge impact on misinformation campaigns in the future, and we want to be at the forefront of studying this. Uh, in visual medium, uh, visual media, so um, photos, images, memes. So we see a lot of memes um, circulating in these groups. So how, how are they used as means of political communication and propaganda? I think that, uh, that's something that we're very, very interested in studying. So for India, I think we would publish uh, what we call a short data, short study or a data memo and then work with the data that we've collected to perhaps uh, uh, you know, prepare publications, academic publications that talk about um, some of these, that talk to some of these points that I've indicated in this presentation. So with that, it's time to thank you, thank Mira, thank all of you, and yeah, I'd be happy to take any questions. Thanks very much, Vivian. Thank you. Thank you.